join with me for the reading of God's word. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made of himself no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Father in heaven, I ask you to bless the reading of your word to our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. If you do have your Bibles, I'll ask you to turn, please, to the second chapter of the book of Philippians, the letter of Paul to the church at Philippi. And uh, we're reviewing verses 1 and 2, but going to speak on verses 1 through 11 this morning as we continue our study on this important letter. In this section, Paul moves from the first priority of every Christian life. And every Christian's life's first priority should be the centrality of Christ. We should live a Christ-centered life. Christ should have first place. The very first chapter of this letter, the first section of this letter, deals with the centrality of Christ. The priority of living a Christ-first, Christ-centered life. And now we're switching to the priority of Christ himself, which should guide our conduct as Christians as we strive under the leadership of the Holy Spirit to maintain church unity. As we previously stated during the introduction to Paul's letter, the church at Philippi was a diverse congregation. It had wealthy business people like Lydia within it. Lydia, uh, a seller of purple dye. It had Roman officials in it like the jail, the prison warden that uh, guarded the jail in which Paul and Silas found themselves in, and their families, and slaves, the rich and the poor, Gentile and Jew, all within this diverse body of Christ called the church at Philippi. People on the high end of social strata all the way to the low end. Well, the dispute between Euodia and Syntyche that we talked about last week in Philippians 4.2 could easily have engulfed the entire congregation if the people considered each other with regard to their social standing rather than their standing in Christ. If we make a mistake when we look at each other as who we are in the flesh instead of as who we are in the spirit. Right? There is a unity that we share together because Christ is our Savior and because our, His Spirit uh, dwells within us. And so we make a mistake when we look at black and white, when we look at Hispanic and white, when we look at rich and poor, when we look at whatever distinction you might want to try to make. We make a mistake 
when we gaze onto the flesh. Because that's not how we live anymore. That isn't how we're supposed to be living anymore. And as this congregation allowed their flesh to stir them up, as diverse as they were, the well-to-do and the, the Roman official would easily have begun to lord it over those that were beneath or appeared to beneath them, to be beneath them in the flesh. And for this reason, Paul encourages the people to be like-minded. They had each received encouragement and love from the Lord entering into partnership with him. And also they had received pity from him and mercy from his cross. Well, I want to talk about today, I want to try to expand what I think is really the nitty-gritty of this section of the letter. And I, I've titled it like this, that the priority of laying down your life for others. This is the priority of Christ. The priority of laying down your life for others. In essence, Paul was calling the church at Philippi and calling this church, likewise, to suffer as Jesus did. Suffering comes in a lot of different forms, though, guys. And we make a mistake because, as usual, we, we fail to make the distinction. Suffering can involve persecution. There is a suffering that is regarding persecution. And not many of us have experienced it here, but many of our brethren across this globe have experienced it. There is a suffering that comes from grief, and everybody in this room knows what grief is. We've experienced it relationally. We've re experienced it through the loss, both uh, in death. Some of us have re experienced it through divorce. Some of us have experienced it through in many ways. We know the suffering of death. We know the suffering of grief. But I think that the suffering that Paul was pointing the believers at Philippi towards is what the Bible calls long-suffering. Long-suffering. We don't hear a lot about that anymore. Um, in Ephesians 4, 1 and 2, and again in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, Paul, writing from the same prison cell, from between the same set of soldiers that he was chained between as he was when he was writing the letter to Philippi, began to write to them about this subject of long-suffering. He calls believers to be long-suffering. Listen to what he says in Ephesians 4, 2. And, uh, sorry, 4, 1 and 2. I, therefore, he says, the prisoner of the Lord beseech you. That means beg, I encourage you. I he, it's as close as he gets to command without commanding. I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, and here's the definition of that, bearing with one another in love. And again in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, he writes, Therefore, as the elect of God, and that's what you and I are, we are the elect of God, not in the way that I think Calvinism would try to say we're the elect of God, but we've been chosen by God and we've received salvation, and this is where we're at today. As the elect of God, chosen, holy and beloved, put on, it says, tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness. There's that word again, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. And guys, we could preach a message just on as Christ forgave you, so you forgive others because I've heard the debate. We've had people even here say that it's impossible for us to forgive on this level. And I think that Jesus, I think Paul said that, mm, I think it's possible. As long as you move you out of the way. You've got to move you out of the way. That's our biggest problem is us. Our flesh. The word makrothumeo, which is translated long-suffering, carries the idea of bearing with, enduring, or being patient with other people. How many of y'all got a fuse that's this long with a kid that's about two years old and about this long with a kid that's about 18? Our fuses differ based on who we're dealing with. 
That isn't patience. That's not long-suffering. Not exactly the way we're talking about it here, at least. The Vines Dictionary says that long-suffering is the quality of self-restraint in the face of provocation which does not hastily retaliate or promptly punish. It's the opposite of anger, and it's associated with mercy. Now, I, I got the title for this section from this part in John 15, 13, where Jesus is speaking about himself, and he's speaking about his mission, and the long and short of it is this. He says, greater love hath no one than this. Greater love has no one than this, that, than to lay down one's life for his friends. When we think about this in terms of Jesus, obviously Jesus is laying his life down for all of us who would trust in him. And frankly, he died for the world. The only, only thing is the recipients of grace are the ones that actually turn to him in faith. So not all people are recipients of the grace of this death of Christ, of his laying it down, but he nevertheless laid it down for every single person in this room, whether you have trusted him today or not. That doesn't mean you're saved if you haven't trusted him. It just means it's possible for you to be saved if you will trust him today. The statement regarding the mission that he was on at the direction of his father to redeem fallen human race is also the principle, I think, behind Paul's argument to the church at Philippi and also to Ephesus and also to the church at Colossae. Jesus laid his life down for us because he loved his father. And because for some reason, and I'm just going to put this out there, for some reason, God the Father and Christ the Son saw something in us that he loved. Because when I look at me, I don't see anything lovable. And I don't know what Tina sees, but I don't see anything lovable. And yet somehow, Jesus loved his Father enough to obey and go to the cross. And he loved us enough to die. To be, as we're going to find out, long-suffering with the people he made. To actually allow himself to become one of us, lower than the angels. He made them, but he became lower than them. Get on our level, because as we have heard so many times, he reached way down. Way down. When he lifted me up. When he came for me, he had to reach way down. But what Jesus laid down in my mind, is much more on our behalf than his physical life. I don't think we count it. And I think that's why Paul waxes greatly in verses 5 through 11 on the attitude of Christ that we're coming to. I don't think we focus on what all Jesus actually let go of for us. Paul is calling the believers at Philippi. And I frankly believe the Holy Spirit is calling us to lay our lives down for each other today as well. Last week we observed in verses 1 and 2 as a part of review. Uh, those verses, and you remember I kind of put them together where I saw verse 1 as answer, asking a question, verse 2 uh, supplying an answer in a sense. So verse 1, if there, if there is any encouragement or exhortation in Christ, the command in verse 2 is be like-minded in adhering or obeying it. If there's any comfort of love, it says in verse 1, from the Lord. If there's any comfort of love from the Lord, verse 2 says, have the same love towards each other. Verse 1 says, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit of God. Verse 2 says, be of one accord. Walk beside one another. Partner with one another 
Walk hand in hand with one another. And finally, if you received any affection and mercy from the Lord, he says, be of one mind. Exercise the same kindness to one another. If we've received grace, if we've received forgiveness, if we've received love from Jesus Christ, we're to give love. We're to offer forgiveness. We're to walk in this same kind of unity. In verses 3 and 4, as we move on now in our text, Paul gets to the heart of the problem. He says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Let each of you look out not only for your own interest, but also for the interest of others. Guys, let me ask you a question. What do car dealers, politicians, and lawyers have in common? They're all trying to talk you into something or to get you on their side of an argument. That's pretty much how it boils down. They're trying to talk you into something or get you to their side of an argument. And that's kind of why I hate this season that we're in uh, of election time. In verse 3, Paul uses a Greek word here, Eurythia, which carries a sense of seeking to win followers when he's talking about selfish ambition. Selfish ambition is to try to win um, people to your side of an issue. Actually, it is to cause division or create factions through dissension within the church. When he's talking about selfish ambition, those guys are not thinking about you. They're thinking about them. They're only trying to build a case and add people to their side of an argument because somehow we feel like if the, ba- if the scale's filled up one side or the other, that's how we win this debate. So we try to fill the scale up one side or the other. They're trying to build division and dissension into the church. And if not nipped in the bud, guys, if we go to Erodia and Syntyche again, Euodia and Syntyche, if not nipped in the bud, that conflict between those two women could have become that which divided the church. But the gasoline by which a little fire becomes an inferno is the second attitude Paul mentions in verse 3 where he uses the word kenodoxia, that vainglory, that conceit, that excessive pride in, pride in oneself or in one's standing. Whenever we look at ourselves and say, I'm it. Whenever we come at other people and say, I am the authority and you're nothing in front of me. We have entered into this selfish ambition and conceit where no unity can possibly be uh, fostered in that, in that area. And these people are not working towards that end. Paul's already dealt with men who were working from selfish ambition and conceit to try to undermine him while he was in prison. And so here he warns again uh, against it. And then he tells us, let each of you not only look out for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. You see, in another passage on the need for unity in the church, Paul writes in Romans 12.3, and you remember Romans 12.3, he begins to talk about the members of the body of Christ. And he says in verse 3, For I say through the grace given to me that to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Not to think too highly. When he calls us to fulfill the love of Christ and to bear one another's burdens, the apostle calls us in Galatians 6.1. He says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. And I think the King James and even other translations I've read is a spirit of meekness. Lest you yourself also be tempted. 
This means that we come at a situation, nothing, nothing's going to, I'm impervious to this sin. I cannot be knocked down by this. I'm good. When we enter into uh, any spiritual battle with the nonchalance of that attitude, we will be knocked down. We will fail if we come with that sort of attitude. The remedy, guys, for vainglory and excessive pride is the lowliness of mind that Paul refers to in verse 3. He said, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Guys, lowly mind is not one that's self-deprecating. It's not one that morbidly belittles oneself. If, if you don't understand self-deprecating, it's morbid belittling. It's to look at yourself in the mirror and say, I'm worthless. I, I, I mean nothing. It's to look at yourself and see nothing good and fail to see what God sees. That's morbid, morbid belittling of oneself. So loneliness of mind is not that depreciation of yourself or that belittling of yourself, but an honest estimation of yourself in the sight of God. An honest estimation of who you are before a holy God. And if we're honest about who we are before a holy God, we'd have to say we're about this big. We're a worm. We're very small before God. Yet he loves us. We're not God. We can never be on par with God. We're beneath him, and he loves us still. We have to have an honest estimation of ourselves in the sight of God. It's a mindset, frankly, by which we elevate others and make their needs more important than ours, as it says in verse 4. Their needs more important than ours. What needs are we talking about? Well, I'm going to get down to the spiritual one because we could think of a hundred others probably. The social gospel speaks about a lot of different things that we could think about there, but I feel like it's just one. Uh, we touched on it this morning, Larry did in Sunday school, and I encourage you guys, again, as a side, this isn't, this isn't a uh, public announcement or a commercial, but really you're hurting yourself by not coming to Sunday school. And I would encourage you to participate in it for your own benefit and for your own growth. And this morning, we, we were talking about submission and, and, and making and, and seeing that our needs that, that, that the needs of others are more important than ours when it comes to when it comes to spiritual matters do you have any rights do I have any rights we do think so we think we have rights I have the right not to be offended by anybody I have the right to speak my mind we have rights but when it comes to spiritual matters, when we're trying to reach out to other people, you better put those rights to the side. Oh, you're not going to reach them. It becomes a fight. And to fight because you're right, you're going to lose the person you're trying to reach in the name of Jesus. It can't be a fight. And so what it says in 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6, as we talk about this word submission, and you'll notice now I've moved already. I've moved from patience, long-suffering, now to mutual submission. At the end of this, you'll understand why I've done all this. Likewise, you younger people, it says in 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6, submit yourself to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. Now, after he moves from children or younger people, be submissive to your elders, he says, everybody be submissive to one another. And be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. 
Ephesians 5.21, where believers are called to mutual submission. I, I love this, and, I, and, and most people that I talk to in counsel and marriage, they're not so sure if they like it or not, because they're all good about the part where wives submit to your husbands and the fear and admonition of the Lord are words to that effect. Submit to your husband. Husband, love your wife as Christ loved the church. And before we ever get there, he says in verse 21, submit, submitting to one another. He says in Ephesians 5, 21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Mutual submission is what we're called to. And in Romans 12, 10, it says, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor giving preference. Preference, again, esteeming one another. You know what would happen in a church if I esteemed Rudy and Rudy esteemed me, and I'm just using an example, brother. You know what happened if I looked out for your cares and you looked out for mine? Everybody's cares would be met. Do you know that? If we we're actually mutually concerned about one another like that, nobody would be hurting. Everybody would be ministered to. We don't do that. Even Paul, when he spoke about the Lord's Supper, said a lot of people were coming to feed their own belly's sake at that meal. They didn't care about the other person. They ate their own meal. Without the rest that had come to that feast. They were only thinking about themselves. And sadly, could anything, one man wrote, be more at odds with a modern belief which constantly tells us to put ourselves first? Today we live in that culture that tells us we should put us first. It's me first. It's all about me. The notion, this notion, this idea of putting ourselves first is so affected or infected the church, this person goes on to say, that Jesus' teaching or commandment that one is to love his neighbor as himself is now construed to mean that we must first learn to love ourselves before we can love our neighbors. Really? Do you feed yourself? Do you bathe yourself? Do you look after yourself and your needs? What we're talking about here is to love others as you love yourself is to basically do the same thing for them. It's to look after them. It's to look, that's the kind of love we're talking about. You don't need to learn how to love yourself. You already know how to do that. We don't, <clears throat> we don't need to go to school for that. We already know how to love us. He said to the degree that you know how to do that, love them. So let me move to this attitude of self-sacrificial living because that's really where we're at today. Jesus is speaking now, or we're speaking about Jesus, Paul is, <clears throat> excuse me, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And he speaks, and I memorized this in a King James Version. I have not memorized it in the New King James. but And it's a, a, verse, it's a section of Scripture that I would encourage you to think about. But he begins at verse 5 by saying, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And it doesn't matter if it's a New King James or the King James. It says the same thing. Let this mind be in you. The word is phreneo. It indicates a mindset, a sentiment, or a disposition of mind. Let this disposition, let this attitude, let this mindset be yours. Paul was calling, he was using that word here to call believers to curb their prideful, natural inclinations to take care of themselves and to take on the attitude of him whom they're to pattern our lives after. Who are we to pattern our lives after? After Jesus. And Jesus had every right, as we're going to find out, to demand. And like, like Jesus, we're called to curb our prideful, natural inclination to be first. 
we are to adopt the attitude of Christ as it pertains to our interaction with other people. To have the mind of Christ, a person must be more than committed to the Lord. I'm going to kind of get in your face for a minute. You saw the picture in the bulletin of the guy with the white flag. How many of y'all waved a white flag before the Lord? Adrian Rogers told this story once. He was in the Ukraine. And uh, he had a Ukrainian, obviously, a Ukrainian translator with him who was also driving him around and so forth as he was preaching and speaking in various places. And he asked the Ukrainian man, what do you think about our Christianity? The guy didn't want to answer the question. But he was pressed. And so he came back and he answered the question and he said this. He said, you American Christians now say, when they talk about a person who's come to faith in Jesus Christ, that they are committed Christians. Committed. What does commitment imply? If not that you have control in the relationship. He said prior to 1960, they used to say, he's a surrendered Christian. Surrender doesn't imply control. It implies absolute relinquishment of all rights. It implies giving up of everything that you are and that you own and every willful thought that you have and giving it to God and you surrender to him. And he has control. And in the church today, we find ourselves with a problem. We, we, we find We find that people are committed until they change their mind or something happens to make them think differently. Until then, they're with the Lord. And that is the idea of a committed Christian. But to be surrendered implies that the one given to the choice uh, or given to the choice of surrendering has given up control of their life. You, as a committed Christian, can choose to uncommit. But the surrendered Christian has given up their will for the will of Christ. And I ask you, and I will ask you, and the bulletin asks you, and I encourage you as you go home today, this is one of the questions I really want you to search your own heart about. Are you just a committed Christian? Or are you surrendered? Is your life still yours and he's just a part of it? Or is your life his and he lets you have a part of it? Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And we, we misunderstood that, apparently. Some did. He said in Galatians 5.20, I'm crucified with Christ. It's not me who lives anymore. It's Christ who lives in me. Surrender. I'm calling to that because the Bible calls us to that. Surrender to the will. When Paul encountered the Lord on the road to Damascus, he tells the story in in, when he's speaking to Agrippa in Acts 26, verse 19, he says, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. The heavenly vision, which was, go to the Gentiles. I'm making you an ambassador to them. I'm sending you to the Gentiles. And Paul says, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. In fact, it's so true that he wasn't disobedient that that's the reason he was standing in front of Agrippa at that time. And that's the reason, as he wrote the letter to Philippi, he was in chains because he was not disobedient to the vision. He surrendered, is what I'm trying to say. He didn't just commit. As long as the going doesn't get too rough, Lord, I'm with you. But man, if it gets too tough or if my life is in danger, I'm out. That wasn't Paul. Another way to say 
or state verse 5 would be to say, let this attitude, let the attitude of Christ be in you. Jesus said it like this in Matthew eleven twenty nine: Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm lowly, I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you'll find rest. Jesus isn't asking us to do anything that he didn't first do for us. He was humble. He's asking us to be humble. Jesus was humbly surrendered to the will of his father. The will of his father was to give his life a ransom for many. Mark 10.45 What is the attitude of Christ to which we're called? What is the attitude that we're being called to in verses 5-11? through What did Jesus do? As we begin to unpack it, what he did is he set aside all his rights and privileges as God. For my sake. For your sake. For our sake. He set aside all his rights and privileges to do that. And we are called to follow his example and do the same. Read with me or read along with me as I read verses 6 to 8. Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made of himself from no rep- excuse me, no reputation, taking the form, morphe in the Greek, which is an internal nature or essence, the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness, the resemblance of men, and being found in appearance, schema, the external appearance as a man, he humbled himself. But I want to stop right there and talk about these first things that he emptied himself of, that he did. Jesus was in the form of God. Form of God. Uh, the morphe, the internal nature. Jesus, basically, he remained God. He poured himself. It, it, it's like taking water. He's the water and out of one and into the other. It's, he stayed the same. Jesus is still God. No matter what vessel he's poured into, whether he's in the form of God or in the form of man, he's still God. Colossians tells us in many places in verse one, chapter 1, verse 15 and 19, he's the image of the invisible God. 2.9 also tells us that he came as a representation, the perfect representation of God. And not only that, but Jesus is, he was also, he's not only in the form of God, but he was equal to God. Now, for me, that means he was sure of who he was. Jesus knew who he was. Nobody had to tell him anything. He knew who he was. Nobody and no circumstance could take that condition away. And he was by no means insecure about that. He didn't consider it robbery. In other words, he didn't consider that equality and that form, his, the form he was in, the fact that he was equal with God, he didn't consider it robbery. He didn't consider it something that he needed to hold on to. He was willing to let that go. He was willing to hold it with an open hand because there was a greater need. He was not afraid to hold the privilege of his equality with God in an open hand. In fact, the Bible says uh, right there in verse 6, he made of himself no reputation. He let go of that. He emptied himself of the privileges, of the prerogative associated with his equality with God for the time required to fulfill his father's purposes. So let me ask you, what did he empty himself of a while ago? I I said to you that it's more than just his physical life that he gave up for us. What did he empty himself of? The first thing that we need to understand is that to the eyes of most men throughout the course of Jesus' life, including the moments of his death, Jesus was just a man. They just saw him as a man. But the reality is Jesus always has been God. 
God, even when he was a newborn babe in Mary's arms. What did he exchange? He exchanged the glory of his deity. John 17, 5. He exchanged it in 17, 5. He's asking for the back. He's asking for the glory back. He exchanged the glory of deity for this, for flesh. He exchanged glory for what it says in John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I want you to know something about the flesh that Jesus took on. He's still wearing it. Jesus is permanently in the form of humanity. For eternity, he is no longer, he is glorified. He is glorified, but he is no longer in the form of, of, of the spirit of, of God. He's in the form of flesh, man. He exchanged his glory for the time being and covered himself as a garment with the permanent flesh of man. Permanently covered himself in flesh. One man wrote that Jesus emptied himself of his prerogatives as God. Guys, as God, he had the right to be worshipped, but he didn't demand it. As God, he had the right to be served, but he said instead, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom. Many. As God, he had the right and the power to enact instant justice on those who offended him, but he didn't do it. Even at the cross, he could have called down. He could have enacted instant justice, but he did not do it. Jesus never ceased from being God. He still calmed the storm with the word of his mouth. He still healed the sick. He still cast out demons. He still made lame men walk. Still caused blind eyes to see. Still caused dead men to live again. <clears throat> he walked on water. He made little become enough. He was still God. He still had the power. But those areas that he gave up were areas of worship and praise. He was worthy. And he let it go. He let sinful men handle him. He was worthy. But he emptied himself of that worthiness for our sake, for a time. The limitless, limitless God chose to limit himself by taking upon himself the likeness of men. Romans 8.3 in Romans, Paul says that Jesus came in a likeness or resembling our sinful flesh, but reminds us that Jesus was still a perfect man. Do you understand that? Yes, he took on our flesh, but he didn't take on the nature of it. Do you follow? He took on my flesh. He's like me in every way except one. He never did sin. He never did sin. He was made sin for us. Who knew no sin himself, 2 Corinthians 5.21. In essence, he took our sin and he exchanged it for his righteousness. We are told in Hebrews 4.15 that while Jesus came to look like us and to be tested like us, he never gave in to sin like we do. He always passed the test. He was never a reprobate. We have been. Though he came to look like us, he was separate from us. Hebrews 7.26, he was sinless. He came for this purpose in 1 John 3.5, to take away our sin by bearing them, Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, on the cross. He took that handwriting list of offenses and crimes and against us and nailed it to the cross. He nailed it to his cross, our sins. 
his cross. So Jesus denied himself. And then we read that Jesus humbled himself. Verse 8, the second half. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. Now we would, some people probably even in this room, scratch your head, obedient to death. Yeah. He humbled himself and became obedient. Taken together, Jesus set aside his rights and privileges of God and became instead the servant of our Lord. You know, Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1 and onward speaks about the suffering servant. And if you read that section all the way to 53, you read about a suffering servant who came, Jesus Christ. In 53, we read about him having no form or comeliness that we desire him. He was despised and rejected. And we esteemed him as stricken and smitten of God. And if that ain't humility, he didn't do that because he was a sinner. He did that because you were. He did it because I was. He unselfishly gave his life on a Roman cross because his father willed it for our redemption. And so his, Jesus' attitude is an attitude of unselfishness. It's an attitude of humility and it's an attitude of love. But why is Paul bringing the example of Jesus' humility into a discussion about unity. You see, we can't lose this. Paul, he waxed great on Jesus and what he had done here and on his humility. But if we're not careful, we'll miss why. Why was he bringing this to the forefront? Guys, because union with God would never have been possible for any of us had Jesus not both denied and humbled himself in becoming like us, in taking upon himself our sin and in dying in our place. We could never have had union with God if he had never done that. If he had never humbled himself, if he had never stooped down for our sake, we could never have union with God. And that's why Paul is bringing this forward, because that perfect union between us and God was fostered and created and, and made possible for us through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus died out to himself for a greater cause. Guys, unity in the church is no more possible between us unless you and I are willing to have the same attitude of self-sacrificing love and humility unless we're willing to die out to ourself for the sake of others. This was the example of Christ which he declared would be characteristic of those who followed him found in Matthew 20, 26-28. He said, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. So Jesus denied himself. Jesus humbled himself. And now God exalts Jesus. Therefore, it says in verse 9, Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Guys, hold on to that. We're going to talk about that. I never thought about it like this before. Maybe you didn't either. Hang on to it. He gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the God, the Father. Guys, first thing I need to say is the proclamation of these verses is not to imply 
that Jesus, the perfect human, attained to the status of deity because of his incredible self-emptying humility and humiliation. He didn't get the name that's above every name because he attained what no other human could in dying on a cross. He didn't earn this. It belongs to him. The name that is above every name belongs to Jesus. He didn't earn it. He was and is and always will be God. But rather, God whose will it was that Jesus should suffer and die to redeem sinful men exalted Jesus. He exalted him. How? How was he exalted? In one sense, I see it in Acts 5, 30 and 31, where God of our fathers raised Jesus up. It says there, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him, God, has exalted to his right hand to be a prince and savior. I'm sorry, not a. To be prince, absolute, and savior. To give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. In one sense, as we read in John chapter 17, 1, in one sense, Jesus was glorified in his death and resurrection. He was exalted in his death and resurrection. He was glorified. It's he who is the firstborn from among the dead that he should have the preeminence, Paul says in Colossians 1.18. Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead that in everything he should have first place. That means the first one to rise from the dead, to resurrect again. It is Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life, John 14.6. It is Jesus who blazed the path. Matthew 7, 13 and 14. It's him who opened up the narrow gate. It's him who blazed the narrow path that leads to eternal life. And few there are who find that path. It's Jesus whose name is remembered, feared, and hated over 2,000 years after his coming and going. It's Jesus who rose from the dead to reclaim the glory that was set aside for our sake. It's Jesus who is coming again to call his church home 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 16 and onward. It's Jesus who's going to bring judgment on the earth and to reign and to rule both for 1,000 years, Revelation 20, verse 4, and forevermore after that. But verse 9, see, even though we can speak to it was in his resurrection and in his death that God the Father glorified Christ the Son and exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name. In 9, it's specifically stated that Jesus is given the name which is above every name. What name is that? Now, I'm asking Gentiles. I'm asking non-Jewish people, non-Messianic Christians. I'm asking you today, what's that name? If you're not a Jew, you're not going to know. You see, we read... First of all, that the angel announced to Mary that she would divinely bear a son and, she, and that angel declared to her that the name of the child would be Jesus, Luke 1.31. And to the shepherds in Luke 2.11, in the field on the night of Christ's incarnation, the angel declared the name of the child would be Christ the Lord. So what's the name given to Jesus that's above every name? Is it Jesus? No. Is it Christ? That is his calling. Jesus Christ, that's not a first name and a last name. It's Jesus the Messiah. Jesus Christ. What is the name? In Greek, it is the word Kyrios, which means Lord. 
supreme authority. But in Hebrew, to the Jews, it was the one name they could never say. It was the one name that had to be pronounced in syllables. They could never say it. It was Yahweh. It's Yahweh. It's the name of the self-existent God. It's the name, I am that I am. The only name that is above every name is the name of God, Yahweh. That's the name. And he gave it (coughs) to Jesus. Jesus was always there. That's his name. Yahweh. The exclusive name of the self-existent and eternal God. Jesus was Yahweh before he went to the cross. Jesus is Yahweh today as we come into his house to worship him, to declare his name, and to praise him. Do we walk in awe of him? Do we walk in awe of him when we come into his house? Is it with reverence and awe and even fear? The worship and honor and respect and fear and obedience and reverence and awe that Jesus deserved when he walked among us, though he did not demand it, will readily be demonstrated towards him when he returns. And even today, as a result of his convicting spirit, the work of the convicting spirit within us, knees bow and tongues willingly, gratefully confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of him who sent him. Soon, every knee is going to bow, willing or unwilling, will bow before him. Isaiah 45, 23 declares it. Revelation 5, 13 declares it. Every knee will bow before Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. But guys, the nitty gritty of this is here. For Jesus and for his Father, the prize to be grasped was humanity. And as we have learned from the gospel and this passage, Jesus was willing to give up everything to accomplish his Father's plan and make redemption and remission of sin available to you and me. As his followers, the prize to be grasped is still humanity. The Lord's priority needs to be ours. There are souls to reach with the gospel message in the church, whether at Philippi, Ephesus, Quero, or Westoff must allow nothing to impede or halt or hinder the message that we've been given to declare. Remember I told you a few weeks ago that some people are like prickly pears. They're tough to get close to because they, mm, their, their personality just gets you. And how some of us are so grating in our life, we walk around like billboards with the message of God on us, but our attitudes are the graffiti that covers up the message. And so you can't read God's message because you're too busy seeing the graffiti that's covering it up. We can let nothing, we must let nothing impede the message of God, which includes, that includes unity. Our unity is imperative 
if we're to be effective in the work. And that unity will require surrender. It requires surrender. That's why I started with this. It requires surrendering our wills and lives to Christ. It requires patience or long-suffering. It requires mutual submission. And it requires humility. If we're going to win the world, and I, I say that in loose terms, if we're going to reach the world for Jesus, you're going to have to surrender to Him. I'm going to have to surrender to Him. You're going to have to stop claiming your rights. You're going to have to stop declaring that I have a right to this, I have an expectation of this, you don't have a right to offend me, you don't have a right to this or that. You're going to have to put everything on a back burner for the sake of other people if we're going to reach anybody with the gospel truth. Get the graffiti off the billboard. Let the message of God shine through. It has to be seen. And that's the message I think Paul has for us in this first section. He's going to use some other examples as he continues to talk to us. But today, we understand from Jesus' life that unity comes from a humble spirit. Humility. And humility is the attitude of Jesus. Do you have it? Pastor, you need to ask yourself that. I ask myself that too. I ask us all, do we have this attitude? Have you waved the white flag of surrender before God? Have you given Him your life or just a part of it? Or have you given Him none at all? I can't say. You can. You know. And my encouragement to you today is to take a moment as we come to the time of invitation before we break the bread and take the cup of communion. Consider. Consider your relationship with Jesus. Is it a convenient commitment? Or is it sacrificial surrender that you have today? Will you stand with me, please? Father in heaven, as we stand before you this morning, you know our hearts and you know mine. You know my intention today. Father, let your intention be known clearly among us. Father, let us abandon any carelessness. Let us abandon any sense of I've got other things to do or this is just a part of my life. Let us abandon these things and move this morning in faith. Help us, Father God, to truly apply ourselves to your words today. Let your spirit move. Let's get in Jesus' holy name.